Chapter Ten of It Happened in Egypt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. It Happened in Egypt by Charles Norris Williamson and Alice Muriel Williamson. Chapter Ten: The Secret Money Kept. Cairo at last. My watch said that the journey took only three hours, but my nerves said six. I had telegraphed Biddy first thing in the morning the hour of my arrival with the Candace crowd, and I half expected to see her at the big red and white station, but there was no familiar form in the throng, the gay throng which excited my charges. Everything interested them, the black face of the Sudanese engine-driver who looked down from his huge British locomotive, the display of English, French, and German literature mingled with Greek, Italian, Arab, or Turkish papers on the bookstall, the ebony and copper-colored luggage carriers, who seemed eager to take one another's lives, but in reality desired no more than to snatch each other's jobs under the eyes of the uniformed hotel porters. To me the busy place was a desert lacking one face. Even outside the station-yard, and in the streets and squares where silent camels looked their contempt of electric trams, soldiers in khaki uniforms jostled Bedouins in khaki robes, and drivers of Arabias made the way one long procession of shrieks, I still glanced at passing carriages in hopes of a belated biddy. All in vain, and destitute of news I resigned myself to the task of piloting the set out to Mina House. The moon would be full that night, and it's the thing to be a neighbor of the Sphinx while the moon feeds her with honey. The flock, under the guidance of Mr. Watts, had now definitely parted from the set, chieftained by me. They went meekly off to the cheaper hotels, where they would live before boarding the Candace again for Palestine, and Colonel Corcoran, who was supposed to have joined that party, announced that he was bound for a long talk with Mark the Lark. Mr. Watts, refused by Enid Biddle and separated from her, had relapsed into melancholia. He had ceased to brilliantine his once sleek hair, and dust and crumbs were allowed to collect in each fold of his clerical waistcoat. As we of the set buzzed richly away in taxicabs, I saw him in a shabby Arabia between two old ladies, gazing wistfully after us. He was envying me Enid. It is a wonderful drive through Cairo to the pyramids, whether you spin out there in a motor, or trot on a donkey, or lilt on a camel, squatting cross-legged on a load of green bersim. Past the great swinging bridge, and the island of Gezerah, the word that in itself means island, begins the six-mile dike, in which the road is made by Ismail to please the Empress Eugenie. Since her visit, in the days when the Suez Canal was opened, it has pleased two empresses, and more queens than I have time to count. Under the deep shade of Lebec trees it goes on and on, toward the pyramids, a dark, cool avenue, high above cultivated fields flooded by the Nile when the river is up. The emerald waves of grain flow like green water to the foot of the broad dike road, and canals like long, tight-drawn blue ribbons are threaded through it, their ends lost to sight at the shimmering horizon. Even at this noon hour, when the world should have been eating lotuses or luncheon, the interminable arbor was crowded with strings of camels, forever going both ways, into Cairo and out. One wondered why and there were flocks of woolly-brown sheep, and donkeys drawing sideless carts in which whole families of veiled women and half-naked children were seated tailor-fashion. 
On we spun, past the zoo, past scattered villas of Frenchified oriental fashion, which might have been designed by a confectioner, past azure lakes left by the ebbing Nile, and so into sudden dazzling sight of three geometric mountains in a tawny desert, two monsters in size, and one a baby trying to catch up with them. Oh, everybody breathed, for these things were beyond words. Then in a moment more the great pyramid had grown so big that it loomed over us and ate up half the sky, a pyre of yellow flame against a flame of blue. We were at the end of the shadowy road that leads like a causeway to the desert, and on the verge of the golden, billowing sea which flows round the pyramids and engulfs the distant sphinx. Oriental life encircled us, in the foreground of the picture, a long row of waiting camels gaily saddled and tasseled, delicately nibbling bursom green as heaped emeralds, donkeys white and gray, beribboned and beaded, small yellow sand-carts, little white desert horses and tall brown desert men, camels snarling, donkeys braying, horses whinnying, and men touting. Very nice sand-carts, very nice camels. Take ladies and gentlemen quick to pyramids and sphinx or petrified forest. Farther on, the big modern hotel, rather like an overgrown Swiss chalet built by Arabs, a vast, confused building the color of sand or brown heather honey, with carved mushrbiya work lending an eastern charm to windows, balconies, and loggias, and enough green, flowery garden to give a sensational effect of contrast with the tidal wave of the desert poised ready, it would seem, to overwhelm palms and roses. Clustered near, the tiny mushroom village which huddles under the shelter of Cheops' pyramid. Beyond, the immense upward sweep of golden dunes, culminating in the great pyramid itself. I stayed in the picture only long enough to settle my big children into their quarters, and to see most of them making for the dining-room, agreeably oriental with its white and red walls, its dome and windows of mushrbiya work. Then I darted back to Cairo in a taxi driven by a Nubian youth, so black that he was almost blue like a whortleberry. He wore a scarlet torbouche, a livery of violet, and the holes for silver rings in the tops of his ears were so large that the light shining through gave the effect of inserted diamonds. Unconsciously he made a nice contrast with his modern motor. He drove with such reckless speed that camels rubber-necked to look at us, and whirled me past the fat black gatekeeper into the Gezeria Palace garden of scarlet paths, moonlike lamps, cadaveral statues, and spreading banyans where each tree continued itself in its own next slumber, like an endless serial romance. I nearly asked for Mrs. O'Brien, but turned her into Jones at the danger-point. The face of the concierge, as he said that she was at home, conveyed nothing. Yet I could not resist adding, Are the ladies well? Mrs. East is not very well to-day, he replied. We have had the doctor, but the young ladies have been out spending the night with friends, I believe. They have not yet returned. It was a long five minutes before Biddy and I were wildly shaking hands in a huge private sitting-room, all red and gold brocade and crystal chandeliers, as it had been in the days of Ishmael. I knew I should be delighted to see her, but I didn't realize that it was going to be quite as good as it was. "'Anyhow, you're all right and safe,' I heard myself blurt out. "'I'm safe, but not all right,' she reproached me. My messenger, who went to the train, didn't find you from my description, I know, because he came back with my note. Too flattering was your description, or the other way, I asked, trying to bury her up with frivolity. You wouldn't joke if you'd read the note, 
Oh, Ernest, Monny and Rachel have disappeared. Good gracious, but Anthony, he went to look for them, of course, and he's disappeared, too. By Jove, the exclamation sounded inadequate, but I was so taken aback that I had nothing else to say. It seemed impossible that Anthony, instead of averting danger, could be involved in it himself. It was unlike his resourcefulness. I could not believe it of him, and so, when I had time to control mind and tongue, I said as much to Biddy. Yes, I felt like that, too, at first, she admitted. He gives one the impression of being so infallible in any emergency, somehow, as if he'd be above it, and look down on it from his height. But it's more than twelve hours since he went, and he promised to send me word how things were going on if he couldn't get to me himself. No word has come. What have you done? I asked. Have you communicated with the police? Sir Marcus Lark has. He was at the ball, and has been very good. But it's for Mrs. East's sake, mostly. One feels he's glad it happened, to give him the chance to win her gratitude or something. He's been back and forth all day, and I'm expecting him any minute. Mrs. East has been fainting and hysterical, and everything early Edwardian, so I sent for a doctor. But she's better on the strength of sal volatile and eggnog, and she's promised to see Sir Marcus. Now, tell me what happened from the beginning, I said, when I had made Biddy sit down by me on the sofa, and was trying to warm a cold little hand in mind. What it all amounted to, told disjointedly, was this. Since Monny had had an inspiration, the day after our arrival in Cairo, to give Rachel Guest a lot of her new unworn clothes, Rachel had become quite girlish and flighty. She had lost her Puritan primness, and behaved more in accordance with her slanting eyes than with her bringing up. She giggled like a schoolgirl rather than a schoolmistress, tried to make herself look young, and copied Monny in the way she tilted her hat and dressed her hair. No harm in this, but it had seemed to Biddy that Rachel deliberately incited the girl to do things which Antoine disapproved. Bridget fancied that Better's influence had been at work, for knowing, as he did, that Antoine would gladly give him marching orders, he took pleasure in thwarting his superior when he could do so with safety. Better had been clever in enlisting the girl's sympathy for his soul. As for Biddy, she had disliked him from the first, and imagined that he had tacked himself onto our party as a spy, upon the receipt of orders from America, he having learned most of his English there. The idea appeared so far-fetched that she had abandoned it. Now, however, it was again hovering at the back of her mind. Better had told Rachel stories of the fascination of hashish-smoking, and had said that no stranger knew Cairo, who did not visit one of the best houses where hashish, though forbidden, was still secretly smoked. He had assured her that there were several which were perfectly respectable, even for the nicest ladies and gentlemen, and Rachel, probably at his suggestion, had tried to persuade Monny to make the expedition. Monny had mentioned it to Antoon, in the presence of everybody, and, as Rachel and Better had looked guilty, Biddy guessed that they had wished to keep the plan a secret. Antoon had perhaps too brusquely vetoed the idea. He said that there were no such houses which could be visited by ladies, and that it was absurd to think of going. That word absurd stung Monny. She began to protest that Better knew Cairo as well as Antoun did, and was as likely to be right. I don't see why we shouldn't go, if others do, she persisted, and I've always longed to know what a hashish dream was like, ever since I read De Quincey. A little, just once, could do us no harm, and Rachel says—but what Rachel had said was evidently not for publication. Miss Guest stopped her with a hand on hers, and a dear Monny, please don't let us think of it any more, if Antoun Effendi disapproves. 
Maybe it was a silly idea, and we've plenty of amusing things to do every minute. Monny was apparently contented to let the idea slip, and Bridget had thought that, in the excitement of getting ready for the ball, she and Rachel had really forgotten it. Then, before writing me, she had overheard Rachel say to her friend, It's for twelve o'clock sharp, and Monny had answered, Won't it be great? Does better think— But she had stopped short at sight of Bridget. Even this did not suggest to Biddy a visit to a hashish den, for various other plans had been broached and discussed by Antoun. She did not feel that, as she was not supposed to know his real status, she could go blabbing to him, and fearing that mischief was on foot, she had wished for me. When I didn't arrive, she soothed herself by reflecting that, after all, she need only keep a sharp watch over Monny when midnight drew near. None of the party intended to dance, and so it would be easy, Bridget thought, to have an eye upon the girls. Monny had brought oriental costumes for herself and Rachel. They were rather conspicuous, luckily for Biddy's plan, for among the many gorgeous dresses in the casino she had no difficulty in tracking those two. Until half-past eleven, she told herself, she need not be on the alert every instant, but therein had lain her mistake. Sir Marcus Lark had appeared, dressed more or less as a Roman officer of the occupation days, he having heard Mrs. East remark that whatever anybody said it was her favorite period. The lady, of course, had not missed such an opportunity to appear as Cleopatra. She had brought a costume with her from New York, and while Biddy lost herself in watching the effect of this magnificence on Sir Marcus, the girls vanished. Without alarming Mrs. East, Bridget had begun to search. She asked everybody she knew in the ballroom if the girls had gone out, and inquired in the cloakroom, but the two had been seen by nobody. It was as if they had melted into air, and Bridget began to suspect that they must have covered up their brilliant dresses with dominoes smuggled into the casino. Willis Bailey was at the ball, but he had developed a flirtation with Miss Guest, and Biddy felt that he was not to be trusted as a confidant. Perhaps, too, he had helped the girls to disappear. It seemed cruel to frighten Mrs. East, when the scheme, whatever it was, might be no more than an innocent freak, so Biddy said nothing to Queen Cleopatra or her Roman attendant. She slipped across the garden to the hotel, and sent an Arab messenger off in a taxi with a note to the address Antoun had told her would find him. In less than an hour he had arrived, and when he had listened to her account of what had happened, he said, after a minute's reflection, that the ladies had almost surely gone with better to some hashish den, or a place masquerading as such. Antoun consoled Biddy as well as he could, by saying that no harm would come to Miss Gilder or Miss Guest. Better would know only too well on which side his bread was buttered to take its clients where insult or danger could reach them. Off Antoun went to look for the missing ones, though, and assured Biddy that she should have news as soon as possible. It was not till three o'clock that she had begun to be very anxious, and had disturbed the harmony of Sir Marcus Lark's duet with Mrs. East. Even then she would not have spoken had she not feared that the ball would break up, and there would be no man to appeal to. Sir Marcus had been inclined to smile at the notion of danger, but he, like Anthony Fenton, was ignorant of any private qualms which troubled Bridget O'Brien. She could not tell him who she was, and that she considered herself far from being a mascot to her fellow travellers. If she had told, and added that she feared enemies who might for certain reasons make a mistake in Monty's identity, he would have laughed his hearty laugh, and said that such melodramatic things didn't happen, even in Egypt. But you know, Biddy appealed to me, that melodramatic things have happened to me and those near me. 
I'm not even sure that poor Richard's death was natural, though I watched over him like a hawk in those dreadful days when he was fearing every shadow, and we were flitting from pillar to post, with Esme. Through Richard two men were electrocuted. He used to get threatening letters forwarded from place to place, always signed with the same initials, and he wouldn't tell me what they meant. It was because of them that he hid Esme in a convent school before he died, for she was threatened as well as he. I, too, for the matter of that. Not that the child or I had done the organization any harm, but Esme is of his blood, and they may have thought I had more of their secrets than I really have. I've not used the name of O'Brien for years now, and I've moved about so much that sometimes I have felt I must be safe. Still, I ought perhaps not to have gone to visit Esme, though she wrote and begged me to, for special reasons I needn't bother you with, a curious little love romance which I fear must end badly. I didn't think of danger to Monny, but you see, as I've told you, the convent isn't far from Monaco. I got off the Laconia there to visit Esme, and when I came on board again, Monny and Mrs. East and Rachel came with me. They'd been in Italy and France, and had picked up Mrs. Guest, who was only too enchanted to batten on Monny's kindness and dollars. It was I who had engaged their staterooms on a cable from Monny long before, and if there were a spy somewhere, he might have the idea that I wanted to smuggle Esme out of her convent by a trick, and— "'But almost every one must know Miss Gilder's face from her photographs and newspapers,' I broke in, on a stifled sob of Biddy's. "'She couldn't be mistaken for another girl, as an unimportant young person might.' "'I'm not sure. Those photographs were snapshots, and very bad, as you must know if you've ever seen any. Monny never gave a portrait of herself to a newspaper, and it's years since they got hold of a good one. Besides, if she weren't mistaken for Esme O'Brien, that wretched better might have made up the plot to have her kidnapped for ransom. It was a thing Monny's father was always afraid of, absurdly afraid of, I used to think. I think so still, I said. Such things don't happen, anywhere, to a grown-up girl. What about Raisalee in Tangier? Biddy challenged me. He used to kidnap people whenever he liked, and so do lots of brigands. We haven't to do with brigands. Oh, what's in a name, and I wouldn't put anything past that horrid better. As Anthony said to you, he knows which side his bread's buttered. But if he hopes someone will give him more butter for being wicked than he can get from us for being good? Let's not think of far-fetched contingencies, dear, said I. Now you've told me all, I will try to do something. May I come in? boomed a big voice at the door. I knocked and nobody answered, so I thought the room would be empty. Biddy dropped my hand like a hot potato. She had jumped up so quickly from our sofa that Sir Marcus Lark's observant eyes could hardly have seen us sitting there together. "'Of course, come in,' she said. "'Have you anything to tell? But I'll call Mrs. East. She won't like you to begin without her.' Biddy darted off to an adjoining room, leaving me alone with my employer. "'What do you think of this affair?' I wanted to know. "'Well,' said he, "'I can only judge other men by myself.' If I had such a chance to appear a hero in the eyes of a pretty woman as Fenton has, I'm afraid I'd be tempted to take advantage of it, even if I had to play some trick to make myself indispensable. Now you can see in a nutshell what I think. Captain Fenton will certainly rescue those young ladies from a trap if he has to make the trap himself. I was disgusted and shrugged my shoulders. You have a poor opinion of Fenton, I said. On the contrary, I think very highly of his intelligence. I'm not worrying about any one of the three, though don't mention it to Mrs. East or Mrs. Jones that I said so. I've come to tell them that my men have searched Cairo and found nothing. 
Not the police, you know. I haven't applied to the police, after all. I thought Fenton would be furious. And anyhow, it might make talk. But I've paid the best dragomans in town to look sharp, and they know as much about this old place as the police do, if not more. By the way, Lord Ernest, did Corcoran say anything to you about an intention to throw over his job on the Candace? No, he said he was going to call on you, that's all. He did call. I was out, on this business, as it happens. He waited, and I found him, making himself at home in my sitting-room, which I use as a kind of office. I wish I knew how many of my letters and papers he'd had time to read. Surely he wouldn't. I shouldn't say surely was the word. I'd gone out in a hurry and left things scattered about, which isn't my habit. When I came back, it struck me that my desk looked a bit tempting for a man with a retired conscience. I was going to keep him on the Candace, rather than fuss, because it wasn't so much his fault as mine that he was the wrong man in the place. He couldn't do any harm in Jerusalem, it seemed. Let him wail in the Jew's wailing place, if he'd any complaints, I said to myself. I thought he was too keen on money to resign because his silly pride was hurt. But to my surprise he informed me that he'd come to hand in his papers, as he called it. So much the worse for his pocket, and the better for mine. Only it struck me as damned queer, considering Corcoran's character. I wanted to ask if he'd spit out any venom to you. Not a drop, said I. But I too thought it queer, considering Corcoran's character, and the fact that having resigned of his own free will, he could hardly expect Lark to pay his way home. It even occurred to me to wonder if the resignation were not a sudden thought of the Colonel's. He had spoken several times of going on to Palestine, and had mentioned the trip that morning. Had Sir Marcus said something inadvertently, which had so piqued Corcoran that he threw over his appointment on the impulse? Or had he perhaps been dishonorable enough to glance at a letter, in which Lark referred to him in terms uncomplimentary? As I asked myself these questions, Mrs. East came in with Bridget, and Sir Marcus forgot me. His face said, What a woman! And anxiety was becoming to Cleopatra. It gave her that thrilling look which only beautiful Jewesses or women of Latin race ever wear, a look of all the tragedy and mystery of womanhood since Eve. "'What news of them?' she asked Sir Marcus, when she had given a ringed hand and an almond-eyed glance to me. "'No news exactly,' said the big man, "'but I feel sure your niece and her friend are safe.' "'My niece and her friend!' exclaimed Cleopatra, ungratefully frowning. "'Why do you say nothing of Antun? Does nobody care what becomes of him?' As she spoke there was a knock at the door. One of the Arab servants of the hotel announced that a man had a letter for Mrs. Jones. "'Mrs. Jones!' cried Biddy. "'I am Mrs. Jones. Where's the letter?' "'That man not give it to us. He say he see you or not give it at all. "'Well, why didn't you send him up? "'Arab man's not let in hotel, if peoples don't ask for them. "'An Arab? Not, not, is he a stranger?' "'Yes, Mrs. Very low man. Never comed before. "'Bring him here, quick!' Five minutes passed. We tried to talk, but could think of nothing to say. Then the servant returned, ushering in a dwarvish Arab in a dirty white turban, and the shabby black galabia worn only by the poor who cannot afford good materials and the bright colors loved by Egyptians. "'From Antun Effendi?' asked Biddy, in excitement, as he held out a piece of folded paper, not in an envelope. The man shook his head. "'He speak no English,' explained the servant who waited. "'You talk to him,' Biddy appealed to me, while Cleopatra told the hotel footman that he might go.' but I had no time to question the messenger. Biddy cried out as she unfolded the paper, "'Why, Duffer, inside it's addressed to you. It says—' 
for Lord Ernest Borrow, to be opened by Mrs. Jones in his absence. Within the outer wrapping was a second folded paper of the same kind. They looked like sheets torn from a notebook, and I saw that the address, scrawled in pencil, was in Anthony's handwriting. End of chapter 10